Guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, as ever, remember that all the information you're about to hear is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any illnesses or diseases. Please make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any of the things we may discuss in this podcast. Speaking of education, if you're an exercise professional, coach or anyone working within the realms of health and fitness, when you're done listening here, make sure to head on over and check out our education portal at www themusclementors.co.uk if you like us and truly care about the well-being of your clients about getting access to the best and most up-to-date information in the areas of exercise mechanics hypertrophy sleep improving your online coaching services and much much more then be sure to join up you'll gain access to endless hours of content focused around everything you need to become a truly elite coach and get your clients in the best physical shape possible this is all in the form of video lectures weekly live education sessions and study groups you also get early access to our podcast and access to any exclusive Q&A segments we do with our guests. The content never stops on the portal. It's not a one-off course. It's an ever-evolving learning platform designed to give you the best information possible in this area. Head on over to our website and become part of our epic community, full to the brim of other professionals who, like yourself, are focused on providing the best health and physique-related results for their clients. Join us and them and gain the resources, support and accountability you need to become the elite of the health and fitness industry. For now, though, grab yourself a pen and paper and enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast, joined by the originals, Cal and I. Um, and uh, yeah, we're just running through some um, questions from our from our member site, and then a couple others that um, we feel would be worth bringing up, provided we have the time. Um, but um, but I mean, Cal, how's things, man? It was your birthday. All right, mate. I'm all right. Sorry if my uh, my dog barks in this video. Oh yeah, disclaimer. I've got, a, uh, I've got a mini dash in with Tourette's at the moment, so uh, there might be some barking. Yeah. And um, what fresh? Uh, how old were you yesterday, mate? Forty three. Forty three. Twenty nine years old. <laughs> yeah, he's nearly at the big three zero. Um, but no, that's cool. I mean, I can't really talk. Mine's uh, in a couple of weeks, and I definitely don't look my age either. So, you're, what's yours? The 18th, 15th, 15th. Um, but you know, it's just my 18th birthday. Right. <laughs> 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 no, so, we are, um, yeah, happy to be back. Um, obviously, things off again with the podcast recently, and this is the first one that Cal and I have done together, just the two of us for must be over a year since we've done one like just the two of us i think so yeah because it's always been guests otherwise isn't it yeah yeah so that's quite cool um but no i'll uh just move my mic a bit closer just in case <laughs> so professional um so first question um because we'll aim to not make this one too long um cap what is the reasoning behind your barbell row form <laughs> Is, it, is, it, is, it, is this been specifically asked by the form, please? Yeah, no, no, no. He's not on the portal. This is on. Um, this is on members on the portal. I think it's in reference to that, though. But pretty much is uh, indirectly asked via the uh, the form police. Um, he said, "Would be good to get a breakdown of that versus a perfectly horizontal row." <laughs> so I think I think the the first thing to explain is the fact that there really isn't anything perfect about a barber row in the first place. So we're not going to be in a position where the barber row 
doesn't ha- offer any any form of stability and we're fighting against a bar where we're going to have to overcome a good level of inertia to move that bar in the first place. So for me to do a perfectly strict barbell row, it's negating the purpose of the exercise being there in the first place of me moving some load. So the first two exercises of that session were a D-handle cable row for my lat and a D-handle cable pull down for my lat. So I've trained the lat in its in its contractile length in both extremes there. So the last two exercises were barbell based with a, a barbell row and a hip hinge to tax glutes, hamstrings, erectors, and my mid back. So anything above stacked above that axis. So the barbell row isn't there to perfectly train the lats in the first place. It's, it's, it's hardly going to train the lats at all. It's mm. there for me to stay in that range and, and move some load in the first place. Mm. Yeah. And, that, and that's the, I mean, it depends. I mean, you could get some people that would be able to do a barber and get a lot out of their lats, but obviously the purpose of yours there, we're, um, is not, you know, if you watch how he's done it, um, he's not perfectly bent over what everything above the act, you know, above the bar is essentially the thing that's going to be challenged the most to, to a degree. The lats will still work in a barbell row, like we know that. Yeah. And, um, but their efficiency within that movement is going to be slightly lower based on arm position. Um, you know, and the fact that it's in a, you know, fixed position on the bar. Um, we don't have the necessarily, you know, we're not as adapted to the body in terms of the upper arm position. Um, but the, uh, but it will, you know, and, and that's the thing, like those sorts of movements there, because we, if we distinguish between what makes a lat focus row, what makes an upper back focus row, a lot of people use that, that distinction of like, okay, this, this rows upper back focus. If we think about what moves the, the humerus, like what moves the upper arm, Above the lat, we literally got what terra's major, rear delt, long head tricep. That's pretty much it when it comes to what attaches onto the humerus and is responsible for drawing it back behind the body. Everything else, you know, we're looking at what rhomboids, rhomboid major, minor, um, you know, all those guys, the traps themselves, like those guys that are responsible for scapular motion that make up the mid back, you know, that mid back area that people want to bring up. That isn't to say, like I say, that those other muscles aren't involved. But what we're, you know, as soon as we start taking the arm away from that adductor position moving up, you're potentially bringing in, I mean, the biggest, the guy who's going to have the most um, mechanical advantage in that scenario is going to be um, rear delt. Like he's always situated pretty well above the axis there. Um, Terra's major is very similar to where the lat, you know, is like inserts and originates as well well not originates but where it inserts and follows a very similar path um in terms of the the line of pull of the tissue so we're like okay so we've got potentially in the, in the form of a barbell row we've still got a shoulder extension challenge which is maybe a less efficient lat challenge a less efficient you know terrors major challenge maybe a fairly efficient rear delt challenge in terms of okay efficient maybe use the wrong word because the profile is not what we'd class as ideal but we're looking at it's an opportunity for to get maybe that guy to do a little bit more than that following on from two exercises where Cal's just, you know, trained, trained his lap very precisely. So his lap's still going to be involved and maybe whatever's left in the lap can contribute relatively well, but obviously it's not. Prime mover is probably a sketchy term to use, but it isn't maybe the prime mover there. And it is an opportunity to tax whatever's left in the lap, get a bit more of the other guys further up, like Cal said, and create some sort of isometric challenge to his hip extensors, spinal extensors, 
Um, and if he's allowing scapular motion, we've got a pretty decent challenge to stuff within the mid back in terms of, you know, rhomboids, upper back, you know, what we're talking about in terms of traps, which is, which is ultimately the goal. And that's where the thing of like, when people then assume, you know, or oh, a barber rose, a lap movement, again, they don't necessarily understand the mechanics. So should they be commenting on that in the first place? Probably not. A lot again, if they, if they and they, whether it's mechanics or the anatomy, you know, what what do people actually know what they're training? A lot of the time they don't. You know, oh yeah, so and so, you know, this bodybuilder said that this is a lap movement, so I'll just follow follow suit and see what you know, you know, just just say that's what I'm training. When realistically, even in you know, and, and they going into an even more bent over position doesn't change that fact. Doesn't make it more of a lap movement or anything like that. Um, so it's a kind of a moot point when people make that argument. And then, um, then we've also got to consider, you know, the people that make the claim, like Cal said, he's using it for a spinal extensor stimulus, but that's not the only thing he does there. Um, he's got tons of other things in again, the people that make the same claims of, Oh yeah, you've got to do heavy rows, heavy pulls for spinal extensors because it's the best thing for building like a thick back, which is obviously what they're referring to there. It's a tool, but again, if you follow that that logic, then all you're doing in a, in a barbell row, ideally, because you've got to generate the stability internally, the same in an RDL or anything like that, or even a squat, is you're you know putting those those guys under an isometric, um, you know, it's an isometric condition. They're not changing legs. So if we follow that logic, that it's the best thing for them, and we should be doing isometric challenges for every tissue, but we don't. Um, we know that you know if we if we're doing a bicep challenge, we don't just go in and just hold it in the mid range because that's what we do on a on a row for our spinal extensors. So it does, that that doesn't really apply either. Ultimately, it's just a tool. So when people are critiquing it, the whole point of this sort of ramble is like understand that the, the fact that no exercise is perfect, like Cal said. Understand the forces involved, what tissues are being trained, what what ones are on top of the axis, what's actually doing the work. Um, and like, can you adapt how you perform it to to fit in with other movements you put in the session, like Cal did? Like, um, and also it's the thing of, you know, going into a fully hip flex position on a row, it's fucking hot. I'm sure you'd agree. So uh, I, I literally couldn't go into a fully hip flex position with no bar. Yeah, yeah. So it's the thing. So in terms of what Cal's actively able to doing on that front anyway, he's probably being quite safe. But again, when he's putting in work elsewhere in the week in that like greater position of hip flexion in the form of RDLs, you know, rack pulls, whatever it is, you know, um, and even like squats, you know, you, you do a lot of heavy squatting. If he's going into that in the row as well, that's, you know, it's potentially quite risky just add in when you think about what mounts up across the week. So having an opportunity to lift some heavy load, but staying in a stronger position for the hip extensors. So when it comes to generating the stability around the hips, they're in a better position to do so. That's what it comes down to. Um, and that's why, you know, it's, it's always worth asking people what they're doing before you just like tag them in stories critiquing it because <laughs> you have no idea why they've chosen that tool, you know, especially if they have an understanding of these factors, which Cal does. So that should, um, I should put that one to bed. So basically, it's not a lat challenge. <laughs> it's a it's a, it's an inefficient lat challenge, and it's an opportunity to train other air, other tissues on the back. And and also, it's just like you know, I do exercises. I'm sure you do, 
because they I just enjoyed them and I know they're not the most efficient challenges from a mechanical perspective but I'm like I quite enjoy doing this if it, it, it's a way effective way of like accomplishing or putting in a stimulus that targets multiple areas at once which is quite good for time as well so yeah efficiency in the profile may not be achieved but efficiency of like I'm stimulating multiple things at once so it's reducing the amount I have to load it across a week mm. with multiple different exercises because if we take the approach of every exercise got to be efficient like quote as isolated as possible to whichever tissue we're trying to train you end up doing a lot of movements which works for some people and they have the time but others where you time you know time press like both you and i it's quite fun to include movements that are slightly different like require a bit of skill quite a bit of challenge a bit of juggle and there's cooper i'm gonna have to like strategically mute when he starts barking. Yeah, no, that was probably him just being like sharp Luke, you talked about <laughs> Um, I, th- I think the, the 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 one of the like interesting take home points there was, I, I don't think we can use the word optimal biomechanics and barbaro in the same sentence. Thing, if you're putting that in, you um, you're you've got to understand like there are you know if we if we study this stuff which we should we know there's potentially a, sh- a smaller population that it's appropriate for, um, and. And then, you know, that's the case of um, making that decision as a coach or if you're applying it to your own training, you make that decision based on, on what you want to get out of it. And a lot of the time it isn't being like, I'm putting this movement in because it's the most optimal challenge for all the tissues involved. It's like, no, it's just another tool that is potentially quite useful and has survived the test of time in the sense of, and that's, you know, we've got to give it credit where it's due. A lot of people have done it for a lot of years. There's a lot of people that can't do it whether they've got issues in the lower back, whether they just don't have the skill level, whatever it is, but the people that can, like they've used it to great effect. And it's quite nice to be able to do similar stuff with our own training and understand them, understand the tools and have a bit of fun with it. Um, so yeah. that's the rationale behind Cal's Barbell Row. <laughs> yeah. he, can, uh, he can come onto the podcast now and debate if he wants. Yeah, I'd love that. Love that. Um, yeah. But like, I mean, that's the thing. Hopefully you got that in terms of the difference between a perfectly horizontal row. Like if we took someone into a fully, you know, fully hip plex position, if they could even get there actively, let's say, and safely, because a lot of people don't have that range. Um, let's say they could. It's going to change the length of the tissues around the hips. So they're going to be in a slightly different position, whether that's, you know, strong, it's probably not quite as strong potentially for holding that position if you're using a relatively heavy amount of load. So your ability to maintain the same angle at the hip might be slightly more difficult. In terms of the spinal extensors, they're not really going to change. Their relationship with the pelvis and stuff may change depending on if you've got to move through the spine to get there. Because a lot of people, like I say, they won't have the range in the hips to get nine degrees, but they've had to like flex through their spine to get there. And again, that's going to then change the length of those guys, which could be like not as ideal they might have to move away from a neutral spine so it's going to potentially change a lot of the joints involved um like the positions around the joints the the muscle lengths which then whether they've gone into stronger or weaker positions that's stuff that you guys as listeners can can experiment with and, and kind of observe and see what you think um and then um and it might change what's on top of the axis in terms of what's influencing the um motion of the like like the glenohumeral joint moving the humerus behind the body but the 
rear delt will still be relatively efficient. Lats won't really probably be any more efficient by going from like this position to this position. And maybe you're going to get a little bit less of the kind of upper trap fibers sitting on top of the axis, a bit more of those mid trap fibers. So it's, it's largely dependent, but I mean, it swings and roundabouts. The, uh, they're both very similar, um, but equally, I mean, if you, with some individuals, if you take them to that, that small change in excursion of the hip will equate to a big difference in, in the appropriateness of the movement. So be careful. And there's a lot of times where doing it in that position of like hip flexion roughly, which is about where Cal was, is actually uh, permissible and very much appropriate for a goal. So there isn't just, there's, you know, more than one way to skin a cat. There isn't just one. I would, um, in that regard, how would limb length, like the femur length and, and height impact that? Potentially, quite quite largely. I mean, the um, it it because a lot of that range that we might get at the hip might be dependent on like length of the ham, like that we can achieve in the hamstrings. And if someone's got longer lower limbs, they might find that they stop a little bit shorter in terms yeah. of how much they can flex over. Um, so that that will come into it to a degree whether that but you still see that in people that may be short just like poor hamstring mobility and again yeah. that's even if they need to go there um so again that change of angle like whether we get okay what we're changing in terms of what's moving the bar is like maybe we're getting a little bit less upper trap but everything else is largely staying the same in terms of what's working around the shoulder there's not much rationale beyond going like that to that like it's um, it's just other ways of doing it. What's comfortable for the individual? What do they feel works better? What can they progress over time? Like I know if I went into do a barbell row and I went into that fully hip flex position, I'd run into issues in terms of trying to progress that because I don't have the necessary range in my hips and my hamstrings would prevent me from getting there and they would probably fatigue before anything else or as a result and I'd just kind of then lose position through the spine. Things would go wrong. Mm. It's um, is it yeah? It's probably more mechanically, uh, more mechanical conversation to be had on that, which we could maybe do on one of the mechanics podcasts. But yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, the um, <clears throat> but the we'll leave that one there then. Um, your reply on the thing. Have you seen my traps and erectors? Yeah, I mean that's that's the goal. Um, but again, like you know, like I said, people want to train their erectors. You don't have to just do isometric stuff. You can start. You know, doing challenges where you're actually moving through spinal extension yeah. and challenging that throughout the range. Why wouldn't you? Um, so same guy, Harry, has asked, other than productivity, is there any... Well, actually, we'll come back to that one because I just talked for too long and this one's probably going to be taken by me more. But um, So next question was, what got you guys into coaching? Um, what do you reckon, Cal? Uh, both my parents are teachers, so it's probably a natural path of progression. They're going into some something that's uh, educational or teaching or coaching based. And I probably come from a big background, or like sporting background as well. So that's always been around me in terms of like coaches being in my life. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think ever since I started, ever since I started training personally for more body composition goals 
like maybe before it was like, oh, I want to train because I want to be, you know, I want to be a better rugby player when I was at, you know, uni or whatever it was or school. And then it turned to, I want to train because, you know, I'm fascinated about building muscle and changing the physique and how it looks. That then led on to a natural path of, you know, a passion towards helping others do the same thing. Um, and like, I, I'm not the, I, I'm not an individual who wants to aspire to be a, you know, top pro bodybuilder, neither do I think I, I could do that genetically, but um, I think uh, it's cool having the ability to help others have those aspirations and potentially people that are going to be more realistic in terms of getting there in the first place as well. It's cool to be able to be part of that. And like for my own clients, like I'll, I'll get as much kind of um, reward from seeing them achieve their goals, if, if not more reward from seeing them achieve their goals as I would from my own stuff. So it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool way of doing it. Because mm. you went straight in from uni, right? Yeah, I, I went to work some recruitment in London for just okay. under a year just to get a bit of money and it was absolutely awful. Um, I just can't do that corporate thing. And then uh, I went in, I went in from there, yeah. LA Fitness and then Halo after that. And they finish in in Tommy Draws. In Tommy Draws, yeah. I think it's a pure gym now, but it was it was originally LA Fitness. Okay, yeah. The LA PT days where you have to go on like a you have to go on a one day business course in in London at Marble Arch, and uh, it's literally just like a three hour seminar on how to like sell to clients and stuff. Um, but yeah, that's where that's where we started. I was teaching. I used to teach like two or three classes a week, and I had to teach like an ab class um like a core class and something else imagine you doing that now that would be one of the best <laughs> die <laughs> Cal, this, is your, this is your training for the day like what <laughs> uh yeah that's that's where it started um yeah did you did you start integra when you no, no, no so i went i started it but i was um yeah i started at halo when it was previously the gym that was my mm. uh, technically yeah that was pretty much my main job my first job so i because I was training in a gym in Tunbridge um, and then like in between uni and then I think I went for a job there and they didn't have one. Um, so I went and looked around and there was found the gym, which was now Halo Gym. It, it was called The Gym, but it wasn't the same chain. And then, um, yeah, that was mine. So, But my, my journey was pretty similar. I mean, mine was probably similar to you. Like I've always had a passion for education. So being in that position of being able to kind of impart knowledge about the process and we're like kind of coaching is an easy route into that um that was how i got into it um and and again it comes into like the passion like you said the passion for like training itself understanding about everything there and then kind of people start asking you advice and you start like you know it becomes easier to give advice and you're like oh i can get paid for this this is quite cool i can just train people and uh, because obviously before i got into like online coaching i was you know i identified more as a personal trainer which i still would i think online coaching still is personal training um just in a different format um personal coaching personal training whatever um the uh so yeah so that was that was the route in and then obviously it was i mean the, the route into online coaching came from knowing knowing you and, uh, and like, you know, working with James briefly as well, because obviously I worked before, because I obviously worked in Halo, then went for a job at UP, turned that down to go to Integra. And then 
worked there for a bit and then obviously applied for M10. And then through that, I was like, oh, work with James. Um, I think I was working with James at the time, actually, throughout that process. And the, you know, I was like, this online coaching thing's quite interesting because then you speak to you and, you know, it's like the, the ability to work with more people and like the on paper freedom that you get, but then you realise quite quickly it's not. <laughs> like, oh my God, I can just work from home. I can work from anywhere. It's awesome. I can go on holiday and you're like, actually, but then I'm not really going on holiday if I'm working. So that doesn't yeah. But the, um, but yeah, I mean, that's like that's obviously the thing that people don't talk about. But the, yeah, it is cool and like being able to work with more people in that environment, like that setup of, it's very different. And I do miss like the personal training side of things. And I think there's that's something I'm kind of edging back towards. And like when things with the portal uh, have grown to where we want them, um, and the, you know, that's everything set up there. Like the, the, like the goal is to kind of open a little space and then go back to do more of the personal training side of things but with you know under the muscle mentors brand and kind of operating in a slightly different way trying some new things that obviously i'm like studying especially things like with with jacques and you know just putting more of the tools we've got into that into action in that personal training scenario um and and just kind of developing more of a unique service on that front i think it'd be quite fun um but um but yeah, I mean the the ultimate same things, Cal. Like helping other people is awesome. Um, you know, like from the education standpoint, like the main reason getting into that is like being able to kind of help other coaches, you know, grow and develop and really improve everything they do. So that in turn, there's like the knock-on effect of everyone gets sweet results in the world and the fitness industry is a better place. Um, it's um that's that's it so you know it's that kind of will to help others which i think i think there's a lot of people yeah that's kind of probably something that's quite common in the fitness industry i think there's a lot of people that probably get into it just because they're like well i like fitness <laughs> i like training and then um, but if you kind of dug in a lot of that would probably be to because they enjoy helping others yeah you'd hope so anyway. it's probably quite easy to spot the ones that aren't um so um but no, so that's hopefully answered that one. Um, the um, so back to the other question. Other than productivity, is there any downside to having Cooper as a dog? <laughs> he barks. <laughs> God, dog. For those that are, like we literally had a team meeting this morning when we were, so the what the fourth of March, twenty twenty one, and um, Kat, we were just saying how what Cooper's just going through his phase of barking at everything. And then what's he doing whenever you go find him around the house, you got to say the story. <laughs> Basically what will happen is he'll bark at literally anything. It's like, if he hears like the wind blow outside, you'll go mad. And then I'll go and find him wherever he is in the house. And he'll look at me with like his little puppy eyes and I'll go and pick him up and he'll wet himself whilst I go to pick him up. So you'll just let out a little bit of wee and just whimper. It's, it's it's like it melts my heart. It's it's awful. How um? But how how much does he weigh? Have you weighed it? Oh, he's he's literally like he weighs like four kilos. You have to think is what are you? Hundred and thirty. Yeah. Hundred and thirty six foot four thing just walks up. I fucking shit myself as well. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, so I mean, I'm sure it would be interesting to see if there's any other people with dashings that can relate. Like well, I was saying, one of my clients has one, and he, uh, she went through a very kind of 
a heavy barking phase as well, um, which, again, is just um, apparently any sign of movement out the window. It was like, okay, yeah, there, you go. there she goes. <laughs> I think it must be in the breed. It must be in the breed. Little, little man syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, so no, so the question was, other than productivity, is there any downside to sleeping for too long? Could it be a sign of something? Um, currently without an alarm, I wake up around 10 and a half hours. Um, like, assuming he's after 10 and a half hours sleep. So that's, um, and that, like, I think there'll be a lot of people that can relate to that. Um, and the, it's an interesting one, because like, if you look at the data, like a lot of people would be surprised to know that longer sleep duration is actually arguably more more of a, a risk to overall health and um you know risk of all cause mortality so like dying from any cause um then um then like sleeping like as soon as you go up beyond as a graph here which is from um i have to i'll have to find the paper and i will link it in um in the uh yeah, I'll link it in the show notes um, so people can find it. But there's a the way they basically analyze the relative risk. Um, and again, it even is interesting because down to what, like five five hours, you're potentially running, you know, not really any like much greater risk than where you'd be at seven. So that's quite good news for some people. Like the the and I know I've said it before, like because previous data, previous stuff I've read is you know, suggested that being any less than seven hours is really problematic, but, and maybe it is for certain, certain things. Like if you're looking to maximize, you know, insulin sensitivity and appetite control, you know, hunger regulation, appetite regulation, and, and, you know, testosterone production and fat loss and muscular, like maybe we do want to be close to that seven hour mark, but in the context, in the context of like risk of dying from any cause risk of all cause mortality like pushing down to like five hours is potentially okay and obviously you want to make sure that the quality is fine but anything above as soon as you start going above eight hours it seems you actually run more of a risk of dying than if you were down at like four it looks like um and as you get to ten and a half and longer it seems to basically take a very steep rise so people that are sleeping like upwards of 11 12 hours you probably got some issue there um and in terms of the actual um like post you know the and again i can link this uh this paper um in um in as well because it's like looking at the the um it was by capuccio in 2010 um and he uh the excerpt from this um and this was shared by a paper an article um this is where i found the paper um was actually an article which some people would probably want to read um because of my notes from it the by on goozy.com and it's called shots fired at um matthew walker um matthew walker's why we sleep is riddled with scientific and factual errors i didn't write it people i'm just uh <laughs> just reading the uh the the paper um but the so on this uh this bit he pulls out um, so he said, proposed mechanisms for mortality associated with long sleep include long sleep is, so one, long sleep is linked to increased sleep fragmentation that is associated with a number of negative health outcomes. Sleep fragmentation is people waking up throughout the night. And I've said this before quite a few years ago when we, when I presented on sleep that that 
area of you know when people a lot of the time we see people getting longer sleep because they wake up maybe after seven hours and they force themselves back to sleep for another three and then they wake up feeling very groggy that's potentially what you're looking at as being a problem um so that's one thing and sleep fragmentation is potentially a bit of an issue and then two long sleep is associated with feelings of fatigue and lethargy that may decrease resistance to stress and disease which could be related to the first point as well three changes in cytokine levels associated with long sleep increased mortality risk so generally you're potentially just walking around with a like lowered or just more on edge immune system cytokines are essentially immune molecules um we don't they haven't specified whether that changes are up or down and then long sleepers experience a shorter photo period that could increase the risk of death in mammalian in mammalian species mammalian species i'm not entirely sure what that means yet so i'm not even going to try and like kind of postulate what shorter photo period actually um equates to um I mean, photo is light, so I'm assuming that is light period, but someone can correct me on that. So essentially, yes, that probably makes sense. Shorter time in the light, shorter photo period could increase the risk of death. We know that daylight exposure, if that goes down, is not a good thing. So that's probably what, that's a fancy way of saying daylight, potentially. And then a lack of physiological challenge with long sleep de um, decrease longevity. Um, so again, potentially just there's less activity in the day, less um, physical activity which we know is very good for us in the right amounts. And then lastly, underlying disease processes mediate the relationship between long sleep and mortality. So there's a lot that goes on. Um, and, um, at the, you know, basically I would say if you're sleeping for 10 and a half hours and we know that sleep quantity would decrease with age. So if you're younger, you might be able to get away with it. Um, but I would probably look to, um, you know, look at other areas of your sleep hygiene, daily life, figure out if, if you have got that sleep fragmentation going, are you waking up and forcing yourself back to sleep? Um, are you going to bed, you know, much later or kind of different times every night? Are there, are there things you could be doing that could kind of regulate your sleep and wake times um, in terms of times you go to bed and go to sleep that would maybe reduce the, uh, um, reduce the likelihood of you kind of having these really long bouts. Um, and, um, play around with it because there's not usually one answer there. It's going to be something about examining what you're currently doing and um, changing, changing some of those, uh, those practices. But that's probably what I could say on that. And hopefully that's helpful for some people out there that what potentially is going on with those longer bouts of sleep um, and they're potentially something to worry about slightly more than shorter bouts. Um, so uh, yeah, if there's any questions on that, then if people are watching on YouTube, drop them in the uh, drop them in the comments or reach out to me on Instagram, whatever. I can if you've got any data on it that would be potentially useful, then fire it over. Um, but yeah, that's um, that's pretty much that one. Cal, what are your thoughts, guy? I'm muting myself so you can't hear Coop. Oh really? I saw the um, um, yeah. Has he just been going nuts in the background? Yeah. Yeah. Not to. Um, so I mean, those were it in terms of the questions. I'm disappointed, portal members, you could have given us more. Um, but one more thing we could discuss um would be uh I mean the because I know it's something that you've looked into in terms of um just moving some papers out of the way. Um in terms of 
you've used it yourself in the past, but I was asked a while ago about people using D handles or fat grips doing like cape, you know, cuffed cable lateral raises and like what the potential benefit there is. Um, is that something you still do or do you, do you know? I, I did it for a little bit. I don't do it now. Um, probably because I'm just lazy and I can't be bothered to find handles to do it. But um, like I, I had a, I had the thought process that it would kind of stop my, uh, my hands potentially being the limiting factor and not being like braced with the cuff on my wrist. I'd have something to like almost increase the proprioception of me pulling away in that movement. But I, I don't use them now. I don't, I don't really see there's a, there's a huge difference between the two. Mm, yeah. The, um, cause I mean the, the response I get, cause I, I came up with, and it's from stuff I've been studying with Jacques Taylor, which I hugely recommend for those that want to geek out on neuroscience and, Things like proprioception and interoception and extraception, like how all these different sensory pathways, which are pretty fascinating, but that, like that's just one area that we cover. But the um, the the response I gave this guy was basically, it, it's not something I personally recommend. Um, and I think because and I think and it also I think stems around a, like a slight misunderstanding of what actually constitutes proprioception because the um, because proprioception in Jacques' definition, that was what I was doing because I'd written some notes on this a while ago, so I was just finding that paper, that was the rustling about a few minutes ago, is I've got it written here. So awareness of posture and movement of the body um, without vision. So that's basically what proprioception is. So it's just your... So awareness implies an ability to consciously identify something um, and posture is, is position. Like that's all posture means. It's like the position of the body, wherever that is, but it's like natural position that you hold yourself. So proprioception is basically just your conscious awareness of the position of your body or a part of it um, and whether or not it's moving. And we, we, I remember we discussed whether, whether we should say like your awareness of the body in space. But again, that would mean like if someone knocked you out and like Jacques used the example is like, if I, you know, someone knocked me out, took me from America and I woke up in England. If I was aware of where my body was in space, I should know that I'm in England. That's that's so that's we can't even say it's in space. It's just awareness of where your you know awareness of posture and movement of the body relative to itself, pretty much without vision. So, like in an example being, if I close my eyes and raise for those watching on YouTube, if I kind of raise my arms up like this, and I'm aware that both of them are roughly in the same position, you know. I can't really get them any further. They're probably looking as where I'd be at the top of a shoulder press. Like, okay, I've got no real kind of proprioceptive deficit, but if I raised them up and I was like, like that, and I was like, yeah, they're both in the same position. And then someone said, now open your eyes. And I'd be like, oh shit. Like that's, that's, that's a problem because that's it. Or I got into that position and my arm started moving down and I wasn't aware of that. And I was like, no, that's, that's not moving. They're both in the same position. I'd be like, okay, there's a proprioceptive deficit because Either I'm not aware of position or I'm not aware of um, motion or both. Um, or if like someone couldn't do a task without seeing it. So if you said someone, you know, watching themselves doing it, like, can you do a, a, you know, some sort of like, can you do a lateral raise? And they're like, yeah, but only if I can see myself in a mirror so I can like track the motion of my hands. But if I close my eyes, I end up just doing some weird shit that would potentially be a proprioceptive deficit. So the, the, the thing of like holding a, 
holding a thing in your hand isn't really giving you anything there. It's not going to change that awareness. It shouldn't do. It's just giving my explanation was it's giving you the familiarity of holding on to something. Um, like there's a, there's some people that have claimed like having an open or closed hand will change stuff that goes on at the shoulder and activation of tissues around there. And I believe that we said that it would like increase the amount of separation that occurs at the AC joint. But quite frankly, I've not found any evidence to say that other than there may be some kind of mechanistic hypothesis proposed around that. But as far as I understand the mechanisms, it's not really anything. They're pretty dubious um, as well like in terms of the efficacy. So I would kind of, I'd say that one's a stretch. Um, but the, and even when we do it with an open hand, like when I do lateral raises, sometimes I end up doing it with an open hand, sometimes it's closed. It's not something I'm fully aware of a lot of the time. Um, maybe I have a proprioceptive deficit, but the, um, but there's still, even when I have an open hand and I'm sure you'll be the same cow, there'll still be a lot of tension in the tissues of the hand. It's not like it's like flopping around and doing that, yeah. like everything's still engaged. Um, so I think to say like, if I have an open hand, there's no, like there's no tension in the tissues. That's, that's far fetched as well. Um, but the, the, what I said to this guy was I like to apply the principle of Occam's razor, which was from my philosophy days, which is basically saying that the simplest explanation is probably the best. Um, and it's not always the case, but it's a great place to start. Um, but the, so, so I bet, yeah. So, my understanding would say that hand position open or closed at the moment, based on what I understand about anatomy and all the mechanisms involved, is unlikely to have much of an effect on the shoulder, like the tissues around the shoulder. And um, there may be some little things that happen, but nothing that would dramatically drop performance um, or improve the risk of injury, like, you know, increase the risk of injury or anything like that. Um, but it is more likely due to that familiarity. Um, so if you spent most of your time pressing, like, cause I think his one was actually in the context of cable pressing. So he was doing cuffed cable presses and he said he finds it more like easier when he has a closed fist. And I said, well, in that situation, what you're probably, you know, what we're probably dealing with is he's just spent years and years and years. Cause he's a very advanced trainer, a trainee doing that move, that similar movement with a closed fist so that's going to be a far more natural position for his nervous system to take. Um, and by moving away from that, there may be like a level of unfamiliarity um, that will rise within the nervous system. Um, but he's still asking the tissues around here to perform in the same way. Um, so, you know, to perform to their maximum ability. Um, so you may see like training performance decline a little bit. But there's this concept in neuroscience, and again, credit to Jacques for teaching me this, called differentiation and de-differentiation um and that's essentially the um the 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 process in which we learn how to do things so when like you see piano players for instance they've like analyzed in the brains of like piano players and stuff like the like cortical real estate like the neural real estate that they have so how their body lay you know sets up its nervous system in terms of the task that they used to do. and there's basically a lot of real estate given to the finger musculature because they use the finger musculature um, and the repeated action of playing the piano will mean the brain basically responds by setting up the neuromuscular system to make them more efficient at it 
um, and consequently less efficient at other things. But the in the context of like someone training for years and years and years and they're doing certain things with their hands, there's similar reason, you know, rationale to say the same thing could happen. So that's probably all we're looking at in those situations is it's just your body has just found a way to set things up to be more efficient. And when you change that, they might see a marginal decline in performance. Um, and it's because um, it isn't a great stretch to say that that same concept would apply to people that are training day in, day out. Um, so it's probably, it's like I said to the, this guy, this individual, it's, it's still a funky mechanism. And some people are like, oh my God, that's pretty fascinating. Um, but the but it's not as funky as some of the other shit that people are coming up with to try and explain it. Um, and there's decades and decades of research supporting that process of how the nervous system changes its real estate in response to the kind of repeat like repetitive tasks that are placed on the body so that is hopefully an interesting little thing to round off the q a um i probably took spoken for like 80 percent of this <laughs> Sorry, with the dogs yeah do. um but um but yeah i mean if there's anyone that has any kind of similar thoughts on that again like we reach out drop a comment on the youtube whatever um because it's um it's an interesting thing to because we'll see that in other places many other places um like what whether we'll we'll develop these natural ways of doing things that in, in maybe other areas of our life that might bleed in and influence how we train you know because we're doing similar things with the body and the body may have adapted and and uh and done that sort of uh made those sort of changes in terms of and which will affect how we use our use our muscles um but yeah, hopefully that was also a lesson on proprioception for people that don't really know what that is. So all those people that are claiming like, oh, I sell proprioceptive exercise to, you know, courses. It's like that's kind of BS. Like yeah, you don't really, you don't really need to. Yeah, and it's like when people claim that. I remember Jacques used the example of people tripping up. You know, and they're told, oh, you have a proprioceptive deficit. And they're like, oh, my God. So you're tripping up and falling flat on your face because you're completely unaware of what your body's doing. Like, no, I catch myself. I was like, well, if you're aware enough to stop yourself from falling over, then you have a, you know, a pretty sufficient level of proprioception. So that's not what proprioceptive deficit is. So it's uh, an area that, I mean, that would be potentially something we could get Jacques on to talk about, actually, um, proprioception and how that can how, how that can influence our training if it and if it needs to influence it at all, like proprioceptive training and stuff like that. It could be quite interesting. Um, but, yeah, I hope it was useful, people. Cal, any last thoughts? Uh, I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> we should get Jacques back on the portal soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There's all these people that we think, oh, we'll get them on the podcast. Maybe we should just get them on the portal. Maybe both. Who knows? <laughs> He's been on the podcast once, hasn't he? Twice. Twice. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he would. Um, and if there's, like I said, there's people that geek out and, uh, you know, want to geek out about neuroscience and understand this area of, that area of learning and how it influences training and how it combines with mechanics because Jacques are, former tutor of rts like michael he's an rts master he's been studying that for well over 20 years i think um but no like follow him on the exercise design lab i know we plugged him with the hypertrophy coach but he's on instagram at the exercise design lab and he posts some very cool stuff um and he does like a a weekly where well, he does a a course which i think he'll be opening up for another intake relatively soon that is exceptional um 
very cool. But anyway, we'll um, wrap it up. Um, any, uh, well, we'll see. We'll hopefully get the next episode. We'll hopefully feature a guest. Um, and we might take the kind of, it'll be a guest and a Q&A, guest Q&A. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll see you on the next one, people. Cal? All good. We'll, uh, we'll catch you soon, guys. Boom. Thank you for listening to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors who support the channel and everything we do in the realms of education and coaching within the industry. Firstly, our original sponsor, Supplement Needs. They've been with us from the start. If you're seeking the highest quality supplements on the market, particularly organ support and health orientated products, you can use code Muscle Mentors at checkout for 10% off your order. Precision Prep, our recently introduced food preparation partner, delivering the finest quality meal prep across the UK, featuring their new Pro Prep range, a concept closely developed with us to solve an issue we see day to day with time limitations and nutritional compromise. If you're seeking the highest quality nutrition delivered to your door for the best price, look no further. Use code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for 15% off your first order and 10% thereafter. And lastly, RAR Optics, the highest grade blue light, blue light blocking glasses on the market with the slickest style. In a world filled with artificial light, particularly those with high screen time, I can certainly say I'm one of them. These can be a real game changer for sleep quality and recovery, something we use personally on a day-to-day -day basis. Grab yourself a pair by using code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for money off all orders. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.